Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get podcasts. It's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. For most of this week, the political world and Capitol Hill have been immersed in the impeachment trial. Well, it's the second impeachment trial, actually, of former President Donald Trump. But for many Americans with school-aged children, this last week has not been much different than the week before, or the week before that, or the week before that. They remain desperate to see their children back in school and return to their normal lives. Many are watching their kids struggle with online school and a lack of social and emotional connections. Others fear that sending their child back to in-person school could compromise the health and safety of other members in their household. Next month will mark one year since students began learning from home. About half the students in the United States are still learning from home. And while Zoom classrooms filled a gap at the beginning of the pandemic, you've seen it's not sustainable. And you told us about this. I have a very, very depressed child. The results have been catastrophic from an emotional standpoint as well as from a learning perspective. My kid can engage in class the moment classes end. My child cannot manage to do anything. The the mediated socialization has been a big problem for my kids. Uh, Lack of friends. You know, they're all under 11, but seem to be experiencing a kind of depression I didn't know until I was in my 20s. So the effects will be long-lasting. We're denying our children so many opportunities with the remote learning and not finding a way to get our children back into the classroom with face-to-face time with teachers. Another reason for the increased attention to the issue of education is the fact that we have a new president. A president who on the campaign trail and in his first days in office made reopening schools a top priority. It should be a national priority to get our kids back into school and keep them in school. If states and cities put strong public health measures in place that we all follow, then my team will work to see that a majority of our schools can be open by the end of my first 100 days. But less than a month into his new job, Joe Biden is learning just how hard getting teachers and students safely back into the classroom really is. And so is his press secretary. Jen Psaki. Could you help us understand what the White House is or what the president's definition of open schools is? Sure. His goal that he set is to have the majority of schools, so more than 50 percent, open uh, by day 100 uh, of his presidency. And that means uh, some teaching in classrooms. So at least one day a week, hopefully it's more. By the end of the week, she changed her tune. Uh, the president will not rest until every school is open five days a week. That is our goal. That is what we want to achieve. Joining me to discuss President Biden's plan to return students to the classroom and what teachers, unions and families think of returning is Marguerite Rosa, research professor at Georgetown University and director of the Edunomics Lab, and Dana Goldstein, national reporter at The New York Times covering education. 
Well, if the 100-day pledge is as watered down as uh, the press secretary (laughs) made it seem this week, it's already been achieved. I mean, the majority of the nation's schools are at least partially in open for some kids on some days for some number of hours. So that's not an ambitious goal because it's, it's happened already. But I think when parents and educators heard uh, President Biden in his inaugural address and um, the days after coming into office say that he wanted K through eight schools open within 100 days. I think the hope was for something much more aggressive, uh, something that looked a lot more like regular school for those kindergarten through eighth grade students. That is still extremely difficult to achieve in those parts of the nation where schools remain shut down. And those are generally schools in more liberal, politically liberal places in cities and suburbs um, with large populations um, and where teachers unions are powerful. Right. I mean, Marguerite, that's the thing. It's it's not that uh, President Biden, we don't know what their intent was when they said 100 days and schools being open. But what we heard was, as Dana pointed out, that meant that kids were literally going to be all kids were going to be in those classrooms. So do you think that they really thought they could make this happen? And as they've gotten into it, what they are recognizing is we have fewer levers than we thought we did to get this to work. That's right. I think the the idea that the federal government controls schools was uh, a bit of a mistake. It hasn't, it doesn't actually fund the basis of schools, but even, you know, I think there was optimism that providing more money would be a sufficient lure to overcome the barriers and reopen schools, but the barriers weren't for the most part about money. So even with the promise of potentially much more aid coming their way, the schools, many of the schools, and especially these big cities, aren't negotiating. Right. That's what I want to get at this point of the sort of carrot approach to this seems to be, you know, we can use money to make this happen. So first, Marguerite, can you get into how much money has actually been that the federal government has appropriated? How has that been distributed thus far? How much of it has actually gone into schools and for what kinds of things? Back in March, the CARES Act was passed, the first federal package, and that brought around 220 some odd dollars per student um, out to schools. And that bipartisan sort of universal agreement, we got to do something very quickly. It was very quick when they did it. And the money flowed. And mostly what that did was stand up remote learning. So the idea, kids got to be home for a while. We got to get laptops out there, uh, digital devices, do some professional development for teachers to help them teach from home. And um, that's pretty much what the first chunk of money was used for, a little bit for students with disabilities and social emotional learning. But really, the remote learning was the main thing. Um, Then the December aid package was passed. That brought a lot more money, about $1,000 or so per pupil. That's very flexible. Um, it can use for, be used for, for really just about anything. And most of that money has not reached districts yet. Um, for those who are open already, many of them are thinking about using it to remediate students for um, who are behind, so with summer school or tutoring. But for those who are still in remote model, 
they're thinking about trying to use it to open schools. You know, do we spend money on COVID testing or hazard pay or how do we do we pay for more aids to try to open? Or they're just not thinking about using it yet at all. There's a long window for which it could be spent. And then this this proposed Biden package would up the number again by quite a bit. So we started with 200 and something dollars per pupil. We went to $1,000 per pupil. This would be $2,600 per pupil on average, um, with some of that really targeted again toward that learning loss, which is the word we use to describe um, students being behind on from where they should be academically. Right, because I think we had this idea, or maybe it was just me, but had this idea back in April and December as, as this was going through that you know, what this meant was each and every school would get this pile of money and then use it to say, okay, we're going to get kids back to school. So that means we're going to have a testing program and we're going to use it for testing and we're going to use it for making sure our classes are ventilated. Was that even a realistic thing to to believe could happen that, that, that there was enough money to make a school, no matter how big or small, be able to do the kinds of things, the remediation that would need to happen, just physically remediation? I think the money isn't the issue. And that's sort of surprising to people because the money was sort of dangled out there as the issue. But we're not seeing it. For those places that have opened, many of them are lower spending districts. And it doesn't seem that there is any level of ventilation or COVID testing that will convince some unions to to bring their people back. And so I think we've even seen this in California where the governor said, here's a bunch of money if you reopen. And a lot of the big districts didn't even apply for it. Uh, said, no, thanks. So I'm not sure the carrot in the in terms of money is working. Dana, you you mentioned this too earlier about the, the schools that are open and the schools that aren't have a lot to do with where they're physically located uh, as well, right? Whether they are in cities or whether they're in small town rural areas or Trump versus Biden, if you want to look at it that way. What are you seeing? Yeah, I mean, politics is, I would say, one of the biggest predictors. We just consistently see that in liberal areas where teachers unions are powerful, where they have collective bargaining rights, this has allowed them um, to have essentially um, a veto power at times over whether schools will be open to uh, be able to make demands. Um, and in some places, changes to ventilation have led to deals that have reopened schools. For example, in Boston, where the public schools agreed to surveillance testing for the virus and to putting things like um, air purifiers in every classroom and central office, these types of specific negotiations did lead to a reopening, which began last week and will be continuing over the next few weeks. And we'll have, in fact, even high school students back in the classroom by April 1st in that district. So it's not that there is no roadmap to achieving a common ground here with teachers unions, but it is very difficult. Um, some locals, and remember there's thousands of teacher union locals across the country, but some locals are really holding out for teacher vaccination. And given the sort of sluggish rollout and the fact that even in places where teachers are eligible currently for the vaccine, they don't always um, have an easy way to access it because there's not enough doses, um, this demand will definitely slow reopenings. You know, we're expecting guidance from the CDC uh, really any minute now 
that will say that if other mitigation strategies are in place, teacher vaccination is not a precondition for safe schools during the pandemic. So that may help move along some of these um, sort of entrenched battles at the local level. But if the carrots, as Marguerite pointed out, that the money isn't necessarily the problem, what about the idea of using penalties, right, using sticks instead of carrots? Have we seen that thus far? And has it worked? Yeah, I mean, President Trump threatened to do that and did not follow through. And I, I really don't think that this president who is a labor ally will do that. We don't see any indication that that is the plan of the Biden administration. And it would it would be very surprising if this Democratic administration uh, chose to withhold federal dollars from districts that are closed. I don't think they will do that. But we have seen some governors that. Yeah. And I think early on, that was part of what motivated districts in Texas and other states to open earlier was the concern that um, they were, there was one policy that held districts harmless for enrollment loss up to a certain date. And um, after that, if you didn't have, if you didn't have enrollment counts, you know, the state funding wasn't going to flow. So it's sort of a workaround way that's a little bit more of a financial stick. And I think districts were responsive to those more at the at the district level and earlier on. It may be too late even for those. I want to ask for both of you. It seems like then really at its core, we're dealing with two issues that can't just be solved by money or policy. And that's fear, which is, am I going to get this potentially lethal disease or pass it on to people I love? And also the question of and inequities about who gets sick and how likely it is that the pe- those people have access to health care. Um, and I'd love for you both to, to weigh in on that and, and how those two issues are really so seminal to understanding the issue about opening schools. Yeah, I mean, I I think you're right that fear and anxiety is a major factor in these questions about whether teachers are going to be comfortable going back to the classroom. And also, equally importantly, whether parents are comfortable sending their children back. The fact of the matter is, in many places like New York, Washington, D.C., Chicago, where schools have reopened after a time of closures, the majority of parents offered in-person learning slots have declined them. And we still need to do more research and reporting on why parents are making those decisions. I think for a certain number of them, it's because they do have fear of their children bringing home the virus, especially in communities that have been harder hit. Uh, lower income communities, communities of color, um, immigrant communities where people are more likely to live in intergenerational households. And there's a concern that, you know, the more people that are out in the world, including students, you know, can bring it home and infect grandma or grandpa. It's a very real fear that people have. Um, You know, there's also some evidence beginning to come into view that some parents decline these spaces in schools because these hybrid schedules where you're only in school a couple days a week are just really complicated from a logistics and childcare perspective. You know, in terms of the fears that teachers have, there is a lot of reassuring research that 
masking is the single most powerful way to prevent the transmission of COVID in schools. So even if someone shows up to a school, if everyone is masking and, and hand washing and covering their sneezes and coughs the way that they're supposed to, there's a very low likelihood of getting the virus. But saying that the risk is low on aggregate is not the same as saying that I can assure you that you are going to be safe if you go back and you know, I interviewed a teacher in Chicago whose wife is having chemotherapy right now for breast cancer, and he does not feel ready to take on pretty much any risk that he could contract the virus out in the world and bring it home. And you have to have empathy for that individual person. And I think you really do have to understand that no matter how much data or research you throw at that person, he may still very much feel that he should have the right to work from home right now. And I, I can't understand that. I'll add in the other factor, which I think is trust. Um, and we saw early on, early on that the larger districts were struggling convincing people to come back. And then it sort of rolled up to the state to intervene. And then now it's rolled up to the federal government to intervene. And I don't think this rolling up to further and further away, larger organizations is working. Where we have seen schools open, many of them are smaller districts where principals had a lot of say in the policies that were in place and could turn and reassure their teachers. And I think that trust is going to be important, especially when it comes to this next stage we've been thinking about what will lure the teachers back. We're going to have to eventually think about what will lure the students back, and they're going to need that trust. And what, as you are looking at this and thinking about getting the students back, what are some of the um, solutions to that? Where we've seen, it's kind of interesting, there was a piece written about a school opening in Baltimore, and many students were at home still learning remote, they could see on the video that some students were in school. And the visual of the students on the screen at school doing fine was persuasive for families. So they may just have to see it in action. And that's why in some ways, this is very hard to both teach students in person and teach them remote. But that that may be the sort of reassurance, like, what does this mean in my classroom, in my school? And am I comfortable with that? So I've also heard of principals talking to individual families. Their families have questions, they want them answered. And they want to know there's so many unknowns that they can adjust. And those are the people going to look out for them versus hearing it from your governor or your president who may not have any influence over your very localized situation. Dana, what about you, especially comparing I, I was just thinking back to, you know, a year ago, the conversations we were having about these red for ed marches and protests all around the country about you know, schools that weren't getting properly funded. And now, you know, again, this job of what should teachers be doing and the role of unions and so sort of reflecting on, on how all of this in these last couple of years has sort of churned the way we think about education and, and the job of unions and teachers in it. Yeah, I mean, when teachers had those Red for Ed protests, which began in conservative Republican dominated states that were paying teachers very, very poorly. I mean, you'd be hard pressed to find anyone across the political spectrum who thought that those, uh, you know, $37,000 a year salaries with 10 years of experience were adequate for teachers who, who started protesting in places like Oklahoma 
uh, West Virginia, Arizona. So those uh, protests were extremely popular. And I think teachers argued and, and parents and the public largely agreed that their work was so essential that they simply did need to be paid more. And, and they also asked for more funding for stuff like guidance counselors and nurses in schools. And those are some of those arguments are continuing to come up through the pandemic. You know, I agree with Marguerite that it is the existence of the technology that makes remote learning possible that has made this such a fraught conversation. I mean, many teachers, they feel a lot of whiplash because in their lives, they've been working harder during the pandemic than ever before. It's very difficult to connect with students online. They are texting constantly with kids, with parents. Um, they're attending Zoom faculty meetings. They're coming up with new ways to teach and learning new types of software. So they feel like their hours are longer and the kind of emotional reserve that they've had to call on again and again to reach out to kids in this realm is, is, is really challenging. And so I think we all should be thankful and recognize what they are doing. Um, so I think that the idea that this just simply isn't working for many kids and is a failed experiment in remote learning, that's going to rub a lot of teachers the wrong way because they are trying so hard. But I do think we have to say that we have some evidence now on student learning, um, mental health, emotional health during the pandemic. And I think for many, many students, there would be just major dividends to returning to the classroom. Dana Goldstein is a national reporter at The New York Times covering education. And Marguerite Rosa is a research professor at Georgetown University and director of the Edunomics Lab. As more schools reopen to in-person learning, a trend is emerging around who is choosing to go back. According to a Washington Post Shar School survey, Black and Hispanic parents are far less likely than white parents to feel safe sending their children back to school. There are many factors feeding this distrust, like intergenerational trauma caused by a history of discrimination and mistreatment from within these institutions, and the education system with its own racist history and the school-to-prison pipeline is no exception. Howard Stevenson is the director of the Racial Empowerment Collaborative at the University of Pennsylvania's Graduate School of Education. School um, is a particular place where racial discrimination or microaggressions, as some have called, occur frequently. And most parents of color can, can say, even if I put my child in a private school, I still um, am trying to keep my eyes open. There's a sort of trade-off between a, 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 a good education and and the, the politics of navigating racial hostility for my child, um, but we'll try to balance that out. And so even before the pandemic, there was always a level of mistrust, which, which you could argue was very salient among those parents, but not necessarily in the news world or in, in the research. And what we've been finding is the pandemic just exacerbated the hypervigilance that even if I'm going to um, put my child in a school uh, that's really good, but still does not know how to navigate the politics of race or prepare teachers to navigate that. And while we've suffered through that at times, sometimes better than not, it hasn't always been negative. But having done that before the pandemic, I was willing to make some trade-offs. But now, during the pandemic, and having my child home for a lot of parents they realize that 
having their child home allows them not to go through the social rejection that happens um, because uh, they're not having to jockey for positions and popularity in social networks uh, in the same way. Um, right. That's, so that's school. interesting that there is both the question of, uh, listen, it's it's not worth these trade-offs because we're literally talking about life or death. And mm-hmm. yes. at the same time, socially, because we hear this a lot from parents, right? And a, mm-hmm. a lot of them from parents acro- that, that I have been talking to, this worry that their children are falling behind when it comes to social and emotional health. But mm-hmm. what you're saying is is that there's also some benefit for some of these children to not have to go through the really dehumanizing part of this in their mm-hmm. school experience. Yeah, and it's a both-and challenge, right? It's a, it, it has advantages and disadvantages. Uh, if you have had a hard time finding your place in the social network in a school, where there are some racial overtones or microaggressions, not having to navigate that for some students is actually a plus, right? Um, But the compromise in the learning process is a trade-off as well. And I think one of the challenging issues of racism in our society is that families of color have had to constantly make trade-offs from the beginning. Pandemic just illuminates a little bit more a different set of trade-offs. And I think some are trying to, to make the case if we can't trust people to protect uh, themselves uh, wearing masks uh, in, the, in the setting and deal with the racial hostility on occasion, um, this, is, this is where I would choose. But you're, you're always going to be bracketing. Um, the isolation at home has not always been great for families of color as well as other families, right? And so th- there's always a trade-off. Let's talk a little bit about this trust gap and, and how to lessen it and... As we are watching the CDC and the Biden administration put these policies forward about reopening schools, talk to us a little bit about the kinds of things they can do to get the trust of black families and and teachers and those involved in in the schools. Well, I think it's not too dissimilar for how we can get folks to see the vaccine as something positive. And and part of that is is education, right? But being sort of going out to where people are, right? To what degree can we um, visit uh, families um, in ways and explain to them in more detail um, and answer their questions, right? I think the, 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 the vaccine sort of um, process, uh, this distribution process has been so challenging that there hasn't been a time to say, how do we educate from very different perspectives, uh, folks in black and brown communities? But, you know, a key thing that schools used to do before the pandemic, and still I, I know someone to do, is that if you have a child coming to your classroom for the first time, you go out to the child's home, you introduce yourself, um, you introduce yourself to the family, you see the home that the child is in, and that builds trust in ways that is immeasurable. Some schools, uh, stop doing that <laughs> regardless of the pandemic, but others have done it as part of their policy. And and I would argue that those schools are more trustworthy. And the, the issue is you don't have to get everything right, but a, but a parent that feels like not only did you come to my home in my neighborhood, you understand where I'm coming from, 
but maybe you're somebody I can challenge and you won't crumble. When I have a concern about race, you won't fold, you won't deny, you won't abuse power. And those experiences build trust over time and parents talk to each other. And so, you know, in the same way things can go uh, badly quick, they can go well if, if, it, if people are beginning to trust with those kinds of risks that uh, schools can take for their better. Right. And that seems the challenge, right, whenever we talk about education, because it has so many different layers, right? You got the mm-hmm. federal, you've got your state, and then, of course, you have your school district. But really, it comes down to, as you were saying, your own personal experience in your individual school with your child or children and their teachers and their principals. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so it seems as if, and I, I was talking to some folks earlier about this, that It's really less about how can sort of the federal or state players, policymakers, help with this trust gap. It's empowering the teachers and the principals and those Mm -hmm. stakeholders, the closer to home. Is is there some place that's done a good job of that in your research, Some, some school districts or areas that they've been able to sort of break that down? I have run into schools, and again, without naming them, mm. partly I, I have run into schools who I think have taken taken race racial literacy to a, a different level. And some examples include, you know, the, the fact that you hear government officials um, talking very directly about racial equity builds a certain amount of trust, right? I can go, as opposed to uh, rhetoric that is more incendiary or hostile, um, that changes the climate of trust, right? And it takes time to build that back. But even for, you know, federal and state officials uh, uh, who lead educational efforts can, what do you mean by racial equity? I'm so glad to hear it, but I get to query. I get to go to a website. Yeah. In a classroom, though, um, you know, the work that I do on racial literacy is really about the ability to read, to reframe, and resolve racially stressful moments. So most of the challenge of trust is in our face-to-face conversations. Having a racial conversation is incredibly stressful for so many people. But if you have teachers who've gotten training in that to manage their fears about the conversation, where they can listen better, they're fully present, they can take some heat sometimes, because all parents give heat, it's just human. But sometimes in a racial moment, some people, you know, they literally um, feel threatened by that. But if I have a teacher that can actually manage the those encounters, that is going to build trust in a very different way than a federal or state uh, leader. Um, and, and part of it is, can I battle with you? Can I share what I'm really concerned about? Um, and can you also, you know, um, come back at me? That's that that's going to build trust in the long run. Dr. Stevenson, this has been a great conversation, and I really appreciate you taking the time to have it with me. Well, I appreciate it, and thank you for the opportunity. It's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. When we talk about the challenges of reopening schools to in-person learning, we always end up talking about teachers those who are willing to go back into the classroom and those who aren't. But it's obviously much more complicated than that. Teachers aren't just trying to manage and mitigate risks for their students. They're also worried about their own physical and mental well-being. 
Since the start of this pandemic, teachers have navigated fumbled national guidelines from the Trump administration and have reinvented the wheel on the fly. Thousands of districts across the U.S. have implemented thousands of models of teaching. This is Patrick. I'm a teacher in Boston. We are being asked now to return to schools, um, while at the same time the state has dropped us a tier in, in the priority list for receiving vaccines. All along, I had thought the plan was for us to teach remotely until all teachers had been vaccinated, and that seems like that uh, is no longer the plan, and we're being forced, uh, it seems, quite hastily back into school buildings. Navigating school reopenings and having teachers back in their classrooms has kept Randy Weingarten, president of the American Federation of Teachers, busy since the start of the pandemic. I spoke with her about the challenges of getting students and teachers back in school. It is very tough to reopen in-person learning in the middle of a pandemic when you haven't had a clear way to fight the disease, when the former president mishandled it so much, when you haven't had the guidance that we asked for or the resources that we knew that we needed. And so you had about 13,000 districts in the last year doing 13,000 different things. But what teachers want, um, they know that in-person learning is so much better than remote. And what they've asked for, since they're the ones that are taking the entire risk on about you know, whether to teach in person, they've asked just to be safe. And there's a roadmap to be safe. And we've asked the Biden administration, just like we've asked the Trump administration, to you know, try to get us the wherewithal to do that roadmap. And, and that's what, that's what we've, we're trying to do. And so when you see this binary choice of it's either the teachers or the kids, it's the teachers that are teaching the kids. And, and if someone is too scared to teach, if you're scared that you're going to bring home COVID to your 80-year-old mother that you are taking care of or to your kids, that's a legitimate concern that needs to be addressed if um, being doing in-school learning is as important as we all believe. Our union has tried to do this since last April. We were the first people to put out a plan, not on whether, but on how. And so that's why the I blame the Republicans who did nothing to help us until December, getting us some um, money so that we could start doing the mitigation strategies and now turn around and blame the very people who are in school. So for those who say, actually, there's been money sent out from the federal government since March, right? There's been a tranche, there's four trillion or so dollars that's gone out the door a lot of it to schools. Is your argument that it was too late, that it wasn't targeted, that it wasn't for the right things? What What's the frustration? So the money that went out the door um, in December was important and was a good down payment. And I really miss, for example, um, Lamar Alexander, who really got this. That money was really important um, because it created a down payment for things like 
ventilation fixes and um, the cleaning supplies, um, the PPE. So the 50 billion that we got in December said sent a message to school districts that they could actually revamp those ventilation systems. And, and you know, some of them have done it. I, I give uh, Chicago, I know we've had a lot of uh, consternation about Chicago. Chicago started revamping its, its ventilation systems and spent millions of dollars on it. Same as Washington, D.C., same as New York City. So the federal money became so important because they were doing all of this as states were cutting funds for education because their revenues had collapsed. Um, so that's the magnitude. And, and I really appreciate um, President Biden's um, push because the $130 billion that is in President Biden's plan has really important components, including dealing with learning recovery issues and dealing with testing, which is a key to the management of reopening schools because you can then see what is very much asymptomatic spread. You yourself have suggested that schools can be reopened. Uh, you wrote an op-ed uh, recently about this where you talked about, um, again, mitigation efforts going into place, including, and it seems that you're p putting the biggest emphasis on having testing in every single school district, um, every single school, is the amount of money that has been put into the Biden stimulus bill enough to address a testing of that magnitude? I think it's a really good start. I'm always um, careful when somebody asks me if something is enough because there's over 50 million children, there's over 3 million teachers, there's over 100,000 schools. And when you're fighting a pandemic, you're gonna be doing this school by school. They have $23 billion in um, the Biden plan for testing. That's what we um, um, thought was necessary. And um, I think it's a really important tool in terms of uh, managing, um, you know, seeing asymptomatic spread. And, and what our proposal is, what the head of the Rockefeller Foundation and my proposal was, is that we essentially test teachers twice a week and kids once a week. New York City, they're testing um, a 20% of the school system every week. And that way you can actually see um, if community spread or if any spread is coming into a school. And then you immediately, if there's a problem, you immediately you know, close a classroom contact trace. If you're seeing two or three cases um, in a school at the same time, and they come from different sources, you, you do the quarantining. And, and that plus the mitigation strategies has been studied, analyzed, and, and, and the experts who have studied and analyzed this have concluded that this is what really reduces transmission in schools. So if we know that and we know how to manage it and we know how to see it, then that's what we need to do in terms of schools. And how much, though, is that still going to be a challenge um, given that, and, and you even noted, noted this in your op-ed that, you know, data alone is not enough to convince parents, educators, and students they'll be safe in school. So how do you do that? Because it seems as if this is where we're sort of caught 
in a in a cycle, right? That the science is telling us this, but then there's still mistrust about the science itself. Well, let's say so. You know, you and I have been knee deep in the science probably for the last several weeks. You know, I look at this stuff every single day. I'm sure you do. Think about what has happened over the last year in this era of disinformation, misinformation. Something as basic as Joe Biden winning the election has not been believed by a disproportionate number of Republicans because the Republican standard bearer kept saying it wasn't true over and over again. That same Republican standard bearer, that same president, literally for every day from March through January, you know, whenever he stopped talking, whenever he stopped being on Twitter, um, had a different story about COVID. So if you're someone who doesn't follow this all the time, if you're someone who has family members who have been sick or who have died, and you have no idea, they have no idea how they, it was, COVID was transmitted to them, then you're scared. Then you don't quite believe, you know, three stories in the last 10 days about this is what the science tells you. So part of our job is to meet fear with facts, but to do it with trusted messengers. We know this when we're talking about vaccine hesitancy. That same fear is existent when we're talking about how do we reopen schools. And so what you're seeing, for example, in Chicago is that while 60% of white parents wanted their kids to have in-person learning, it was only 30% of black and brown parents. So the, the, the kids who need in-school learning the most are the most skeptical. And we've seen that in polls over and over again. So who's a good trusted messenger then? Because can it really come from Washington or from national leadership? Isn't it about who's closer to home? Who Exactly right. So that's why part of what's so important here and part is that if educators um, believe it's safe and feel safe, um, and and I'm you know, and I know feeling is the social science, <laughs> and the safety metrics are the are the are the other signs. But but if we can flip this switch and we get the um, safety mitigation, we we get this roadmap in that I'm talking about, which is the safety mitigation um, uh, strategies that CDC will will talk about the um, the testing prioritizing teachers for vaccination and then and then dealing with the fact that we know that the variant is there and what will happen if it comes to our shores if we do those four things educators who are not at high risk i believe um will be more confident and comfortable about in school learning and they become the most important messengers for kids just because they're the ones who have been on their screens with kids right now. They're the ones parents are relying on right now to help create that engagement. And so it's a win-win situation if we actually can get everybody aligned in interest. And that's part of the reason why this exploitation of fear that I've um, seen in the last few weeks is is so um, negative because they 
the educators, community members, they're going to be the best messengers. And so my union has been doing lots of um, reopening clinics. Every week we have had either a reopening clinic to talk to our um, our, our um, elected leaders about. Um, we've had Dr. Fauci. Um, we've had um, several other um, experts on town halls, and we'll continue to do that. We believe part of our job is not just to advocate for um, what constitutes a safe reopening, but we believe part of our job is education. And so we've taken this on with gusto. Randy Weingarten, thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thank you, Amy. Hi, this is Amber from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and my child attends school in a suburb where roughly half the children attend five-day in-person and the other half are at a cyber academy. She will not be going back to five-day school until there's a pediatric vaccine. My six-year-old daughter is struggling reading and math. She is below where she needs to be, and I believe she may need to repeat first grade if she doesn't get some extreme intervention this summer. I plan to get her in with a tutor service to help catch up, but even with that, I know there are emotional and social struggles she has as well. She has no friend to hang out with her age, and most of her time has been spent with her parents, grandparents, and little brother. I feel that the parents are responsible for their children. If it was up to me, I would keep children and teachers at home. One more thing for me. This pandemic has helped to reveal many things about our society that have been able to stay hidden during the normal times. One of those things is the deep distrust we have of one another. In the before times, we celebrated community and the we're all in this together spirit. But when tested, that community commitment has fallen apart. There are plenty of reasons for this. We're a country founded by outsiders and rebels, we love to hold on to our rugged individualism. We're also the offspring of enslaved generations of people, Americans who have been abused and lied to and denied our humanity by the institutions that were supposed to protect and promote us. And for the last four years, we've had a president who has stoked this distrust, this fear of other, this belief that life is a zero-sum game. If someone is winning, that means you are losing. So it should come as no surprise that educating our children, our most sacred of community covenants, has been reduced to a zero-sum game mentality, too. Many teachers don't trust the community. They see their neighbors ignoring mask mandates. They watch people spill in and out of bars and restaurants, seemingly oblivious to the cost it will take on others around them. They hear people around them talking about the disease as a hoax. And plenty of parents don't trust the teachers or their unions. They see other frontline workers, including many who never signed up for working in a pandemic, doing their jobs. Many wonder if teachers are as committed to children as they say they are. And what about the science? Do we need two masks or is one enough? The vaccines work, but what about these new strains? So we have a choice. We can choose to live in fear and distrust. We can assume that our teachers and our neighbors are selfish. We can disregard the science when it doesn't suit our own experience, or we can try to build our communities with empathy and compassion and grace. It's not easy, but the more we do it, the more likely we are to rebuild our tattered faith in each other. 
That's all for us today. Our senior producer is Amber Hall. Patricia Jacob is our associate producer. Polly Umrungu is our digital editor. David Gable is our executive assistant. Jay Cowett is our director and sound designer. Vince Fairchild is our board op. Our executive producer is Lee Hill. Thanks so much for listening. It's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. The Takeaway.